0: Listeners, welcome to this short series of podcasts celebrating some of the speakers and presenters we'll be meeting at SAEM 22 in New Orleans. In this podcast, Dr. Stephen Haywood of the Virtual Presence Committee will be interviewing Dr. Cheryl Heron, who is our distinguished keynote speaker at the SAEM 22 Dr. Peter Rosen Memorial Keynote Address. If you're listening in advance of the meeting, we hope to see you there. You can find additional information about this and other annual meeting content at SAEM.org.
1: Today, we're going to talk about the JEDI way, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we're going to ask the question, are we accountable? We're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Cheryl Herron. Uh, Dr. Heron, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So Dr. Heron. For anyone that doesn't know her, um, she is an innovator, visionary, leader in the topic of equity, inclusion, and wellness. She's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Emory School of Medicine. She's a board certified emergency medicine physician, full professor, and vice chair of faculty equity, engagement, and empowerment, as well as associate dean at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. In addition to all that, she's the editor of two pioneering textbooks that address these topics of diversity and inclusion in patient quality care. Dr. Her- Dr. Heron, you are probably the leading expert in emergency <laughs> medicine on this topic. Again, thank you so much for your time.
0: Uh, thank you, Stephen, for having me. Uh, it's interesting you say leading expert. I just happen to be somebody who is interested in something near and dear to my heart, simply because we all deserve, we all deserve the right to be here, to do our best work in the emergency department, wherever you land. So thank you.
1: Absolutely. So as the person who literally wrote the book on this topic, uh, can you give us some background on the history of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in emergency medicine?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for the question. And interestingly enough, people like to use the term Jedi, uh, sort of Star Wars-like. And I would proffer that we should perhaps uh, go in reverse, right? When you think about the history in particular, we started looking at diversity in emergency medicine over two decades ago. In fact, my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Leon Haley, who I will certainly give credit and credence to, who sadly uh, died last year, we wrote our first paper in 2001. And in that paper, we talked about diversity, specifically a model program at Emory, and asked the question, You know, what do we mean by that? And where are we in terms of differences which of course led us to then inclusion. Who's at the table, who's not at the table? Why does it matter? What are the outcomes? Are we being intentional, active, are we engaging? That's really the inclusion you know, piece. Diversity, talking about our differences that make us stronger. Inclusion being, being actively intentional of ensuring people are included. And then as we think about the equity, specifically health equity piece, it's just Really, everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible, as simple as that. And some of the early papers talked about health disparities, such as long-bone fractures that were not treated in Black and brown people with narcotic analgesia, for example, by Dr. Knox Todd, one of my colleagues at Emory University School of Medicine. And then where we are today, where everyone is speaking towards justice. And one can think of justice ethically, right? It's one of the paradigms. And it just comes down to everyone deserving equal rights and opportunities, whether you're the patient, whether you're the person working with patients, everyone should, should have a right to those opportunities. And so the history in emergency medicine, I would say, along with what and how this is being looked at across the the nation is really grounded in that. Right. So I would like to just flip it, ending on the foundation of justice so that we all know and understand what we're talking about, which is equal rights and opportunities for all people. So I hope that gives you a little bit of a framework for, for, for the conversation.
1: Absolutely. That's phenomenal. Um, and you've hit on it some in your comments, but what would you say to the skeptics out there? Why is, it, why is it so important that we address these topics in all of medicine?
0: Well, certainly we just have to always look at the data. We always have to look at the data Whether we're looking at the data as it relates to patients and their outcomes, we know, and the literature has certainly had been prolific in looking at health outcomes, which shows us primarily if you think about unequal treatment, right? Institute of Medicine's, now National Academy of Sciences report that spoke to and discussed how we were inequitably treated, right, in terms of outcomes with disparities and ethnic disparities, stereotyping, uncertainty. And that paper, uh, you know, that, that seminal um, manuscript from the Institute of Medicine, was real and set the foundation for a lot of these conversations, whether you look at trauma, whether you look at you know outcomes for respiratory disease, maternal mortality, we can go on and on here. And then the link to the quality, another paper from the Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Sciences, that we all believe, I would hope, that we want quality care for the outcomes of our patients. And so the health equity principle is really about the ethical and human rights that motivates us to eliminate health disparities, to move towards health equity and disrupt health inequity as we go forward. As emergency medicine physicians on the front line who see our patients day in, day out, we should and must be accountable, which is one of the underscores for this conversation, to whatever position we are in, whether you're a learner, whether you're a faculty member, an administrator, a staff member, all of us can be accountable in any one of those domains. And it's really incumbent as leaders in the specialty, as emergency medicine, of which I'm proud to be for going on more than 25 years, uh, to still hold up those principles.
1: Phenomenal. So we know that we need to increase diversity among our ranks to, to mm-hmm. further promote equity, how are we mm-hmm. doing? Give us a progress report, if you will. How are we doing <laughs> increasing those that are underrepresented in medicine at the student level, resident level, faculty level?
0: Well, uh, one could <laughs> I, I, I shudder to almost answer that, but one could look at the data and say, are we increasing in numbers? And one could argue, yes, the numbers are increasing in terms of the end. But when you think about the percentage, we're pretty much stagnated. And I'll just keep it there. When you think about uh, the population that we serve, for example, we know that 5% of of us in the population in academic medicine are Black or self-identify as Black. And when we know that the population in the United States is at 13%, there is a real disconnect there. And we would like to believe and like to think that we're moving forward. Certainly, the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion at the medical student level. And when we think about gender diversity, I'll go there as well, we know that more than 50% of women, at least now, are uh, women in medical school. And when you look at the number of underrepresented in medicine in, in medical school, that number has ticked up ever so slightly. But the percentages are pretty much stagnated over time. And I would proffer that that means we need to start looking early in this game. And when you think about a recent paper published by, I think it was Dr. Linden and her group, not that long ago, I wanna say as recent as last month, I believe February of 2022, they actually looked at uh, the disparities in women and underrepresented medicine and faculty leadership. And they said that there was no change in academic rank, for example, over a six year time span, suggesting that certainly in leadership positions, uh, we must start early to look at these inequities, targeting them so that future inter- interventions could be put in place to advance the narrative, uh, because you can't be what you can't see. And when you think about women in leadership and women uh, professors of color in leadership, we're pretty stagnant in that area. There are probably at this juncture, certainly less than 20 uh, black or brown women who are full professors in emergency medicine. And so I let people bake that for a minute, because (laughs) if we're looking at who stands up where and how, this really speaks to what we must do to move us along the pathway to ensure that we have representation, we have equitable opportunities, and we're engaged. And if I may, and I will speak to this a little bit uh, soon, you know, people say, well, Cheryl, how did we get here? Uh, right? That, that's a million dollar question. How did we get to this place and space where we have this wide chasm, you know, of, of, of this inequity? And we really talk about America's legacy of black oppression and grounded in racism and the need to be anti-racist is really the conversation. Uh, I did not realize, and I and I saw this piece in the Washington Post not that long ago, his name was Philip Bump, who published this, that he said 2022, i.e. this year, would mark a significant moment for our country, meaning that it is a point in the United States where the United States has existed in North America for a longer period than legal African slavery did. So if you look at the African slave trade, you know, back in 1619 or you know, where we've heard of the 1619 project with the Mayflower and all of this going all the way through reconstruction and going all the way through Jim Crow. And you think about when this all comes to fruition around 1965 to 1968. And then you think about the constitution being ratified in the United States, right? 1776, somewhere around there. This year really <laughs> shows that the crossroad, the crossroad of the American history being longer than slavery reconstruction and Jim Crow has occurred. So slavery reconstruction and Jim Crow, all of that makes up more than three quarters of American history. <laughs> and we're just sort of catching up in this present day. So when I started to read voraciously on how do we get there, how are we doing, where are we going? We have got to start in the history. And then certainly with the chasm of uh, COVID-19 and systemic racism, that just essentially ripped the Band-Aid off and had us really take an insular look at what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. So it's a long answer, but we have to contextualize this in all of these constructs, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, we have to think about the underbelly, which is racism.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, you know, in light of of recent things that have happened in the public domain that it has really yeah. underscored the inequality that exists in our nation. Um, mm-hmm. How is that how is that brought to light some of the things in medicine, some of the inequity in medicine?
0: Well, like you mentioned, you know, the last two years uh, where we saw uh, the bandaid ripped off of in- inequity, when you looked at COVID-19. And we looked at how it uncovered the increased number of Black and brown people being either admitted and or dying from COVID-19, three times the rate of, of white counterparts. It really became very sobering you, you know, for me. And we, we, myself and other colleagues, looked at how the COVID-19 pandemic shed the light on these racial injustices. And as you know, many organizations, including SAEM and others, declared racism a public health crisis. Right? And we looked at these intersections of racism and social determinants of health that really resulted in these health inequities uh, that we see now and really pushing us to be anti racist in, in the way that we do our work. And we actually published a paper at Emory looking at the impact of racism on emergency medicine healthcare workers. And we noted that of the 64% of the participants who participated, uh, of the 64% of the participants were very concerned about the state of racism and the outcomes thereof. And 30% reported moderate or high degrees of stress resulting from racism. And this is in our own shop. When we stratified by race, 46% of those who identified as black uh, stated that they had high or high stress resulting from racism compared to 31% of others who participated in this study. And so we know that the impact both on our patients as well as ourselves as healthcare professionals are real. And we talk about the need for more systemic racism research to look at the impact on medical uh, professionals as well as our patients going forward. And we know that institutes such as the NIH under former Director Francis Collins talked about the need to apologize for the hand they had in structural racism and their commitment to instituting new ways to support the DEI initiatives. And I can tell you that we are just stepping forth and stepping forward, but we really can't do this without everyone engaging and stepping up and stepping in. I can say for the record, I'm not a fan of the word diversity in the sense that I understand the historical construct for why it was created. But if you think about what diversity is, it is the sum of what every human being brings To the narrative, whether it's your ethnicity, your gender identity, your religious identity, your socioeconomic status, all of that that comes into play. And so we can't deconstruct some of these diversity issues and make it so monolithic that whether or not we think we see diversity means that we've come to inclusion and equity. Because I think that's a very false way to do this work because people fall into the trap of checking the box, right? I have this many, that many, this many. Does data matter? Absolutely it does. However, the recruitment is one piece of the puzzle. Retention and the advancement, which we know and see over the data over the time, specifically in academic emergency medicine, is pretty abysmal when you see that attrition going up the ladder where we bring And we, we, we work on pathway pipeline. I'm not a fan of the word pipeline either, but pathways to moving forward, we do see that erosion and the tick down over time as we advance along the academic uh, uh, road.
1: You know, I have a a underrepresented minority female that I mentor mentor, and she went Mm -hmm. on an interview and it's funny you say checking the boxes. She was told Mm -hmm. by an old white male, they really wanted her because she would check a lot of boxes for them. she's like, that's Mm -hmm. not what I want. I want to be part of the foundation. I don't want to just be someone who checks boxes. So,
0: so, Stephen, this is exactly my concern. LCME 3.3, when it reared its head and the clear, you know, um, um, needs and requirements came up, this is the danger that people want to check boxes for. And that's not what we're talking about here. And this is why, even in my title, I'm not a fan of Chief. Chief is a bit pejorative, I think. Uh, and disrespectful to our native uh, community, I'm not a chief. (laughs) I'm not a chief, right? I'm not a fan of diversity. Like I said, I'm an associate professor, associate dean, excuse me, for community engagement, equity and inclusion, community engagement. Yes, one looks at the outside community, but also I would argue we need to look internally at our own community, our own shop to say, when we look around at our community, who's not in the room? And if someone is in the room who is reflected of the community, are they part of the narrative? I don't know how many meetings you've gone to or sat in where you may see the only woman or the only person presumptively of color. It takes a lot of psychological safety to step up and step in and speak up and speak out, given the hierarchy of medicine around injustices that people may see or they may not want to say. But they will march with their feet and they will not go to that program. Today, as you asked me, how far are we coming? We're coming a longer way in the sense that people are empowered to speak up and speak out, right? And when you think about justice, people say, well, in emergency medicine, people come into our emergency department, we take care of of everybody, and we do things, um, you know, and treat everybody the same. But, you know, in a paper that I read by Iserson just came out recently in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, it was fascinating because he talked about justice in emergency medicine. And he said it's pervasive, but achieving it can be elusive, right? Because it can be either retributive, right? Punishment or compensation for wrongdoing or procedural where, you know, you have these impartial methods used to resolve problems and produce outcomes, right? And distributive justice really describes in in his paper, you know, who and in, in what way social goods and in this care, health care, would be allotted, and how would it be allotted fairly, and how would it be most relevant in emergency medicine where we have the outside forces of racism and structural racism that could impede how we respond to and or care for our patients. And we know this is not just in emergency medicine, when you look at individuals who I won't say her name, uh, but we all know who she is, an African-American woman who recorded her death for COVID live and on Facebook. And she talked about how she was not treated properly because of being a Black woman. Fascinating. And she was a Black woman physician who had means. And she had, we presume, privilege given her stature. But here in present day and this is where we have these, this tension, this mistrust, this distrust. yes, everyone lands on Tuskegee and we talk about Tuskegee and everyone talks about the healer cells at Johns Hopkins, the womans whose cells were used without her knowledge for experimentation. But are we really 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 speaking about this in the construct in which they are being delivered, which is the personal experience where patients may not know of Tuskegee very well, or they may not know about these CO cells, but they know what their experiences are. And how are we treating people the best way we know how? How are we inviting our LGBTQ population in by respecting their pronouns in our medical records? How are we taking all of these things into account when when you're thinking about inclusivity? And, and, And the bottom line is, whether you're, again, a learner, a faculty member, a clinician, an administrator, a staff member, my message is we are all accountable. We are all accountable, right? Because when you take this diversity of people's perspectives, the equity, uh, not just in what we're doing in healthcare and healthcare outcomes, but in policies, practices, positions, Are we using the inclusivity, which is power, right? Meaning that is your voice and the organizational culture inclusive for all people? Because the link to all of these that go across is really the justice piece, which is the equal rights and equitable opportunities that I have mentioned before. And I can say that we are making strides, right? You see the National Academy of Medicine talking about dismantling racism, systemic racism, health equity through research, meaning that there needs to be m- more research done in this area. I salute Wendy Coates and her team. They published a paper on how to plan for diverse, equitable, inclusive research, I believe, in their armed med-ed research course, where they invited several people to come forward and explicitly talk about this work. I always give a nod you know, to, to um, Downwind Boltwright, who uncovered <laughs> a lot of this work in terms of of the inequities, whether it's AOA uh, uh, representation uh, that we have seen has been quite abysmal. Uh, All of these things means that we all can play a role because this is the role and, and, and the absolute, absolute accountability we must all have if we're gonna reach the narrative, the utopia, if you will, of having a fair and just culture. And I believe SAEM, through the work that they're doing, uh, through ADIEM and AWM and all the other uh, organizations uh, within AEM, the academies, and even the SAEM Health Equity Task Force, the RAMS. It is really impressive to see the energy that is being uh, put forth in this space. It is really impressive to see the accountability and shared responsibility that everyone is raising their hands to get engaged with and I'm also quite hopeful, quite hopeful that uh, the brick that I lay, and let me just be clear here, Stephen, I have no delusions that I'm going to be able to change and move DEI and justice in my lifetime. Because if you if go back to the history that I just gave over to, you know 200 plus years, my goal really is to dismantle the systems of oppression that has been uh, forced upon us and taken away from us, i.e., The politics around all of this, you can't can't teach critical race theory, you can't teach uh, things that have been brought into the narrative. And the naysayers who may say, well, I had nothing to do with that, that is in the realm of restorative justice. No one said you had anything to do with that. All I'm saying is we have to know about it. Because if you don't know the history and how we have landed where we've landed, then it is really challenging for us to then take ownership on the individual and collective level to move forward in a way where we can all feel proud. Because I would argue, I don't care which political line you're under, we can all agree we are not where we want to be at this juncture.
1: I I was emphasizing. I completely agree. Completely agree. (laughs) I, you know, I love that you, you've, put so many topics, so much of the the academic work that's been done on this topic, you know, as a society of academic emergency physicians, you know, we want to use our academic talents to further address this problem. What are some scholarly Mm -hmm. projects that are currently being done or that need to be done that we can do to further address this issue?
0: Well, they're certainly collecting the data. Um, And if you think about the scholarly, scholarly projects, the one I just mentioned, where if you're looking at who's in emergency medicine in terms of leadership, We can certainly look at who's in the room. So if you're talking about uh, data that can be collected from the humans, the people that are working in EM, that's one piece of the puzzle, right? That's certainly absolutely necessary and needed. And then we can look at some of the work that needs to be done in terms of equity and disparities and collecting data on how do people self-identify? Right? I know that there's some work that's happening in the uh, artificial intelligence world, in the electronic medical record world, to think about how are we collecting information to be able to then put forth information in a way that is fair, right? Is the use of GFR, is race supposed to be an underlying part of the narrative? We would, we would say not, right? We would say not. And how are we looking at outcomes, in terms of disparities care in our own institution and our own shops. I know in our institution, we're looking at disparities as it relates to trauma and how that uh, can be impacted or looked at, particularly with um, outcomes. When you think about uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and the trauma that uh, has impacted uh, Black and brown youth that come up and how do we shift that narrative uh, to look at empowering uh, communities for where we want to go. Kato Lorenzen has done some work looking at moving away from just the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. He likes to say DI, diversity, inclusion, and equity, to IDEA, which is inclusion, diversity, equity, anti-racism, and learning, right? So how are we creating um, curricula that could be and should be implemented in GME across the space? to be a part of that narrative going forward. And how do we look at not just these curricula, but the undergraduate medical education experience as we think about how we bring people into this equation to consider emergency medicine and the social justice that is um, associated with that. And so I know that uh, ASAP and others have their diversity inclusion health equity subcommittees who are doing some work in the social justice arena, which is of course linked uh, to this work, how are we measuring outcomes, how are we doing this? And I think that if everyone can see the lens through which they want to do this work um, and, and input into the data uh, uh, so that we can continue to read, because that's how quality, going back to the work on quality, is going to be, I think, accepted and looked at across the narrative um, of the specialty and others, because patient care and patient care outcomes are critical. And the more we collect data on these outcomes and how that looks, I think would be absolutely imperative uh, for us. We do have some researchers out there uh, who are doing bench research. And I think that's fantastic. And what does that look like in terms of outcomes? And how does that translate in terms of outcomes uh, for our communities? And I think the more that we can do it, the more we can do it. How do we you know, look at the number of programs? I know a study that recently came out that talked about the numbers of programs that what do they have on their website to draw in diverse applicants, right? Is it there or is it not there? And I have to say that those are the sorts of things when you look at diversity statements. And there was a study that looked at, I think over 220 plus EM residency programs that just looked at their website and what was on the website in terms of how they identified and It was an interesting outcome in that findings looked at, you know, transparency to support diverse applicants. It was fascinating that they found that only 82%, actually more than 82% of programs did not have any mention of racial or ethnic diversity, you know, on their website. Or gender diversity, 82% the same, right? Only 27% of programs had any diversity statement, right? So why or why not is this not a part of the narrative, if in the end, this is what we're trying to accomplish in terms of residency program. And in this study, they said 16% had any sort of diversity initiative. And I would argue that since this paper was a couple of years old, I would imagine that that has changed over time. So the more we bring forth things to the front of the narrative, the more things will uh, then come. You don't want to shame people, but you want to hold people accountable. You know that the HCGME is doing some work with the HCGME equity matters, right? How are they aligning? How is the AAMC uh, aligning? How is, you know, AMA aligning? How does it work with the National Medical Association? What research should be done on the language that we use and what dominant narratives might be on the forefront? And I know that the AAMC and AMA are talking about this so that we can reconstruct how we center the experience of individuals you know, in in the community, for example, without, you know, labeling or objectifying them or stigmatizing them or marginalizing them. You know, so how do we advance these health equity principles, you know, with how we speak? People who know me, you know, I'm not a fan of the word guys, uh, because that is such a gendered word. And it is so part of our narrative. And people, oh, Cheryl, you don't, t- why are you taking things so seriously? I said, well, you know, words matter. Words matter. And are we doing research around how words are impacting outcomes and how we have normalized gender speak, right? So that's my that's my pet peeve. People know not to say guys around me, people laugh at me when I do that, but this is again, how we are socialized uh, into what we're thinking. And you know, what research is being done on how we navigate bias in interview days. I know Dr. Balhara did a paper on that and they made some very concrete suggestions on nonverbal signals. Right? So when you walk into the space, are there clues up? Are people using their pronouns on Zoom? Are images reflected in, 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 in what people see? Do they see themselves accessible? Can they get in for our, our colleagues who are able-bodied or not able-bodied, right? So these are things that we can do and continue to do research on to see the outcomes of which Uh, to ensure that you have created an environment of inclusivity? Do you have gender-neutral bathrooms, right? I mean, these are some of the things that it seems difficult to study and look at, but in emergency medicine, we've already started to do that work. And we're continuing to do work in our equity uh, uh, work. I I can tell you we're looking at how do we partner with uh, HBCU schools? We're looking at that study to find out how and in what way are we partnering with historically black colleges and universities. We published a paper about how we partnered with Morehouse, you know, and created a model partnership for mentoring underrepresented students in medicine. And we noted that, you know, 32% of the, of, of those who partnered with us actually went into our EM program. And we see that this kind of study to look at not just Morehouse, but other, um, other HBCUs is important. And we're in the process of working on looking at that now. So this is just a, a few of the smattering of multiple papers that I know that are out there, not to mention the papers that are out there that I'm sure and the research looking at equity outcomes as we do, as we do this. And the journals are now uh, focusing, which I'm happy to see very uh, deliberately on having uh, race and ethnic specific journals where they're doing a call for papers, whether it's Annals or Academic EM, to to tickle the minds and hearts of researchers to start to think about what's happening in their own shops that they can study and that they can put out in the literature. And I would argue too, as we do this research, which is incredibly important, we have to do it in the context of ensuring that we're not just studying on communities, but working with communities uh, so that the community engagement that we are doing is truly reflective of their voice and not in, the, not in the space of we're doing something to them, but we are doing work with them.
1: That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I look forward to um, this getting out to the academy uh, and us getting to work to, to further investigate this and get more, more evidence out there and more to literature published. Dr. Herron, thank you so much for your time.
0: No, Steve, if I can say an end with this, I am so proud to be an emergency medicine physician. We have always been on the forefront of this work. We didn't even get into advocacy work uh, that we have done uh, to move the needle uh, and and stepping up and being bold to do so. We are, I think, and I might be biased in this (laughs) talk on bias uh, about emergency medicine, but I am biased towards emergency medicine's belief in doing what's right and doing what's good. And I hope that our message that we go forward with will permeate across other specialties and across other institutions. So thank you, Stephen.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a reminder for everyone, Dr. Heron will be delivering the keynote address on May 11th, 2022 at the Society for Academic Emergency Medicines Uh, physicians in New Orleans just in a couple of weeks. And again, Dr. Heron, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you in New Orleans.
0: It's my pleasure. Take care.